Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 36. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors and malicious actions. I'm excited to be here once again talking about the intel that is coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Big thank you to everyone there for contributing to the information stream. And joining me, as always, is the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, what's going on? And hello to all of our listeners. Uh, huge, really happy to be here. Uh, we had a really fun time last week talking about snake malware, which uh, was a great deep dive into things. But I'm excited to, to get back to some of the regularly scheduled content that we get out of our Intel channel. And of course, I have to give huge props to that channel and to the awesome folks who are out there just constantly reporting on really cool stuff and sharing some really interesting finds with us. So a huge thank you to them as always. Yeah, taking the week off last week to do the deep dive was awesome, but we've got lots of stuff to cover now. So uh, let's get to it. All right. I love it. Some interesting research from Malwarebytes. Their intelligence has uncovered a new lure that targeted the eastern Ukraine region. They've started tracking the actor behind it and have internally codenamed them the Red Stinger. This investigation remained private for a while, but Kaspersky recently published information about the same actor who it called Bad Magic. It's funny, uh, who gets to name the malware is kind of a thing I never knew existed. Yeah, it's an interesting, like, I once had to come up with a taxonomy of how to do it. And uh, it, it, it took a while to figure out a way to do it successfully. Microsoft just changed theirs actually recently, if you ever want to read the history of, of how that comes about. Okay, that, that'll be a good one to go check out. Yeah. Um, they identified attacks from the group starting in 2020, meaning that they've remained under the radar for at least three years. The Red Stinger group has targeted entities in different places of Ukraine. Military, transportation, and critical infrastructure were some of the entities being targeted, as well as some involved in the September East Ukraine referendums. Depending on the campaign, attackers managed to exfiltrate snapshots, USB drives, keyboard strokes, and microphone recordings. It's not surprising that we would see this kind of activity in a war zone, but I do find it interesting that both Kaspersky and the researchers at Malwarebytes were investigating the same thing after the threat actor has been stealth for so long. Do you think something triggered this? Like, did the threat actors change or introduce new tactics that tipped off researchers? You know, this is an interesting one. When you have different incident response companies or teams or groups or whatever the association might be, depending on how this incident was reported, there's a chance that they'll sometimes run into either the same type of incident or they might be at different ends of an incident as well. So if you think about, you know, in the past, we've talked about supply chain attacks. OK, let's say one company gets hacked and then that's used to hack another. But different entities respond to those breaches or those intrusions. Well, they're both going to have kind of a, a opposite sides of the mirror collection of evidence, if you will. And without really knowing what the other has seen, they might be like, well, this is the only time we've seen this, right? So we don't want to release our tactics and release our knowledge just in case this threat actor goes and kind of burns the whole infrastructure down. So I would take a shot in the dark and I would guess that something that tipped this off was probably confidence from folks over at Kaspersky to release information about this, the bad magic group. And you get into this interesting domino effect where a group or information about a group, TTPs, if you will, get published. And then someone like, you know, Malwarebytes says, oh, we recognize those indicators. We've seen those things before. We've seen those in, a, in an intrusion. And we are now safe to publish our details as well. 
So then it becomes, well, kind of who publishes first. And it tends to have to do with either the firm that has the details, who they've been investigating, meaning who they've been doing the incident response for. Uh, In some cases, the sensitivity of the victim organization is so high and also so tailored that you don't want to release that information. You know, for example, I I would not want to release a threat report that says, oh, yeah, this threat actor has been discovered in six international nuclear facilities. You know what I mean? Like there's just some details that you just you want to kind of keep close to the chest or you wait for the details of that threat actor to be released, perhaps in a more innocuous or maybe a little less confirmation way. And what I mean by that is someone might say, hey, here are a bunch of indicators that we've seen associated with this group without naming what they've done or what their target is. In this case, uh, we've got some very straightforward targets. This is a group going after Ukrainian entities, if you will. You're right, right on the money. You know, it is a war zone. There's lots of things going on over there right now. The cyber warfare landscape has been a big part of Ukraine since the day that it started. And I think what we're seeing here is just two firms who responded to incidents. And they likely had either both sides of the same coin or they had, you know, crossover shared indicators. And they did note in the article that I believe it was a former employee of theirs who kind of tweeted about seeing a lure posted. And they just said, hey, here's this interesting thing. And that turned into a little bit of a mini investigation. So not uncommon to see this type of thing happen. And then whoever flips on the light switch first, everyone else is just clamoring up and saying, yep, I saw that, too. I saw that, too. Right. Interesting. They also talk about lures being sent to victims. This sounds different than phishing, but a similar kind of targeting. What's the difference between a lure and a fish? So in in my experience, and in my opinion, they're actually almost one in the same. And what I mean by that is they kind of work together. They're symbiotic. A fish is the thing that you send. A lure is what I would use to get you to do the thing that I want you to do. So obviously, if I sent you an email that said, hey, Chris, click my executable. Well, the... Fish is the vehicle, the email. The lure is the click my executable. Now, that, of course, doesn't work out very well, right? So the lure tends to be the one that gets a little more flavor added to it. In this case, if I remember correctly, I believe it was some sort of PDF or zip file that contained a decoy PDF inside of it that particularly had details from the people, Ministry of Finance, uh, Donetsk People's Republic Order or something along those lines. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head exactly what the translation said. But long story short, the PDF or the decoy PDF would be the lure. The fish would be the vehicle in this case. And then the inherent malware inside is what you're actually trying to get executed. So they work a little bit together where I would say you can sometimes have a line drawn between the two is I might have like an info stealer fish. And I think we've talked about this before or credential harvesting fish where I send you a email or that pretends to want to get you to log into something. And in that case, the lure is I want you to log in and provide me credentials. So there may be another page or some sort of like a spoofed web page involved, which would be almost like a two stage fish and lure, if you will. The lure actually being you need to log in. The thing that I'm trying to steal in this case is credentials rather than trying to get you to run malware. So um, they, they kind of work together. Yeah, interesting, the taxonomy and acronyms and all the things to learn in this field. I tell you, it's a never-ending field of growth because anyone can go publish anything that they've seen and give it any name that they've that they've seen about it. And, you know, I, I view phishing in the same category. I mean, there's phishing, there's spear phishing, there's smishing, there's vishing, there's whaling, there's all sorts of 
plays on words that just make it a little bit easier to say this type of fishing. But at the end of the day, it usually becomes the vehicle that right. is used. Yeah, it keeps things fun, too. Yep. Apple once again made the news with a handful of zero days. Apple is reporting three new zero days affecting iPhones, iPads, Macs, and even Apple Watches and TVs. There is heavy speculation that these vulnerabilities have been actively exploited in the wild. The security bugs were all found in the multi-platform WebKit browser engine, which, if I remember correctly from my iOS development days, is a framework you can use to bring web content into your apps. The first vulnerability is a sandbox escape that enables remote attackers to break out of the web content sandboxes. The other two are an out-of-bounds read that can help attackers gain access to sensitive information and use an after-free issue that allows achieving arbitrary code execution on compromised devices, both after tricking the targets into loading maliciously crafted web pages. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this six new zero days for Apple so far in 2023? Is there anything driving this increase of vulnerabilities we're seeing from Apple? I believe it is six new zero days, or I guess they're not new now that we're talking about them now, but I think it is six total that they've gone through uh, in the start of 2023. And, you know, I think we've mentioned on this podcast before, it's it's software. Software is going to come with inherent vulnerabilities because software is written by humans and humans can't foresee every single way that something may be abused in the future, no matter how hard we try. So I, I think seeing vulnerabilities from Apple isn't something necessarily to be aware of. I mean, six vulnerabilities. We're recording this episode towards the end of May 2023. Six vulnerabilities in just about as many months as an average of one per month, whereas Patch Tuesday may fix, you know, 40, 50 things in Windows or something. So (laughs) I would still argue from an operating system v. operating system perspective, if someone out there thinks that Apple's on a slippery slope, they have a lot of numbers to make up. I think the flip side of that is adversaries understand, and they've done this for a while, but we're seeing it more now with the zero days, especially since they're being actively exploited in the wild or they're reported to be actively exploited in the wild, is you're seeing just the popularity of Apple devices amongst targets that adversaries want to go after. Right. You know, uh, for a long time, it's been held that the App Store or Apple's App Store has been a, a relatively secure place. Not to say there's nothing bad in there, but it's much harder to get an application published than it is in the Android store or the Google Play or whatever it might be. And for that reason, I feel like Android phones have always been given a little bit of a hard wrap, you know, that's easy to get malware, more compromised applications, things like that. So what that does is it raises the premium, if you will, or it raises the the target on Apple devices. You know, if you can get someone to develop some sort of an exploit for an Apple device, you could compromise many people because the devices are popular. So I think all we're seeing here is just a drive of their popular devices and adversaries want to get access to the information that's on them. The other thing that I think may be potentially driving this as well, without knowing exactly what the reported in the wild means, what I mean by that is I don't know what they've been targeting in the wild. Is this espionage? They're looking to dump emails and text messages. Are they trying to steal crypto wallets? I mean, without knowing exactly what the objective of the adversaries is, I would say the other thing that's driving a lot of this is just how much of our lives now live on these types of devices. The fact that this exploit exists or existed across iPhones, iPads, Macs, watches, and TVs just goes to show how prevalent of a code library that was used amongst Apple's entire software ecosystem. And a vulnerability in one meant a vulnerability for many. 
but it also just kind of highlights how integrated these devices are into people's lives. And, you know, the adversaries realize that and they're looking to take advantage of it. Yeah, I find it interesting because, you know, it used to be the old trope that Max didn't get viruses because we didn't hear about this thing very often. But we're seeing these zero days. And I can't remember how many weeks ago it was, but there was that uh, proof of concept ransomware written directly for the Mac. So it just feels like they're they're sort of in these security headlines a little more than they used to be. Yeah, yeah. And I think we also are probably paying a little more attention to it. And let me be clear, everyone, I am not trying to downplay any of these whatsoever. If there's anyone out there who's falling victim to one of these zero days, I wish you the best luck and, you know, patch, 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 as always. I will tell you, my Apple devices were updated the moment that new security response thing that they have gets posted. And by the way, not sure if anyone else kind of took a double take on that the first time they saw it. But when I had an Apple update that said kind of, you know, security response or something, I wasn't sure exactly what was happening. Like kind of, is there some sort of triaging going on on my phone? Did I get pwned? Or, uh, you know, is it just the way that they've named things and it appears to be the latter? But I'll just say, you know, patch, patch, patch to the best that you can. Um, but understand you're dealing with software here and just be careful. You know, uh, I do remember reading through it that it was maliciously crafted web pages that needed to be loaded in order for these zero days to be successful and things. And by the way, sorry, it's an Apple rapid security response, I should have said. Uh, and rapid response is actually a common term amongst like managed security services. But in any event, uh, the maliciously crafted web pages, you know, watch out things that you're opening, text messages from folks you don't know, uh, and just be careful about things that you're clicking. And, you know, if you are really running into problems and you're browsing malicious web pages on your TV or you're running into web browsing on the TV, just be careful about uh, the types of things. Worst comes to worst, you're going to end up with a compromised device and we don't want that to happen. The last little detail I'll add on there as well, Chris, not only do we see the prevalence in this library amongst Apple products. But it also has to do with just how integrated these Apple accounts are. And someone may think, well, oh, if I compromise Apple TV, I've just I've got to compromise Apple TV box. And it's like, well, if your whole profile is synced, guess what? You might have the ability to change passwords, get into password managers, other features of the account, pictures, things you may not want people to have their hands on and stuff. So it can get widespread pretty quick. So let's just patch, patch, patch. The folks over at Cisco Talus have recently identified a new ransomware actor or RA group that has been operating since at least April 22, 2023. This new threat actor is swiftly scaling up their operations and thus far has compromised three organizations in the U.S. and one in South Korea. Talos assesses with high confidence that this RA group is leveraging leaked Babak ransomware source code. Y'all might remember back in September 2021, a member of the Babak group leaked the full source code, which has in turn spawned a bunch of new ransomware groups. And consistent with the trend we are seeing, this group is launching double extortion attacks. Before encrypting files, they exfiltrate data that they use as part of the negotiations. If you don't pay to unencrypt the files, they will go ahead and leak your data. Given that most ransomware groups are pivoting to include extortion as part of their strategy, does this provide a new opportunity for defenders to shut things down before detonation? Or is it pretty much a done deal by the time they're exfiltrating data? I've always held that if you are not detecting until the ransom note is about to be dropped or data is being exfiltrated, you're, you're way too late in the process. So I would argue any group that you're going to run into, we want to try and detect as early on as we possibly can. I think what this does, this whole inclusion of extortion, it just creates a sense of urgency for the ransom to get paid. 
Uh, I wholeheartedly believe that for a while it was make a demand and we'll wait for the ransom to come through. I've personally seen many cases where someone will jump in and they will kind of negotiate down the ransom or, you know, there's long drawn out processes and stuff. And I think ransomware attackers are just like, no, we want to get paid. We're trying to trying to get things done over here, if you will. This is a business. <laughs> it is. That's right. We've <laughs> talked about it many times before. It's a business. So I think what extortion does is it adds a little bit of increased urgency to that to just say, hey, look, I'm going to leak this data if you, you know, if you don't pay. And I will say there's probably a balance being struck that helps, you know, kind of determine what was actually stolen. I do know there's plenty of organizations out there. I, I worked a ransomware case many years ago where the adversaries stole a bunch of data, or I should rephrase that. They locked up and exfiltrated data, came back with a kind of demand and said, hey, if you don't pay, we'll obviously, you know, keep this data locked. We will we'll leak it if we need to. And the company was able to quickly enough perform an assessment and say, you know what, what they took was actually mostly like marketing materials and was things that was published, maybe a few draft blog posts and stuff, but they didn't really take anything that was like sensitive IP. And that allowed them to kind of stand back and say, yeah, go ahead, go for it. You didn't really get what you think you got. You know what I mean? What I think the extortion side of it does is it adds this element of urgency, but also, also this element of rapid investigation. We need to figure out what was taken quickly. We need to figure out, engage, and assess the risk and everything. And sometimes it's easier to just say, all right, let's just pay so we don't have to go through that entire process. And I think that's what the adversaries are, are banking on. However, from a detection perspective, uh, this is much easier than it sounds, but I will always say try to detect as early on as you can so you don't fall into traps like this. Again, if your detection mechanism relies on ransom notes being dropped or files being encrypted in mass, you're a little late in that process. And yeah, you're, it's not going to be fun. You're going to have a tough day. All right. Well, that's uh, some sage wisdom there. <laughs> some interesting stuff from our friends at Checkpoint Research. They've uncovered the Goo Loader, which is a prominent shell code based downloader that was used in a large number of attacks to deliver a wide range of the most wanted malware. It's been active for years and continues to evolve. The latest version integrates new anti-analysis techniques, which makes it very difficult to analyze. New samples of Goo Loader receive zero detections on VirusTotal, ensuring that its malicious payloads also remain undetected. The Goo Loader is a packing and encrypting service that's been highly successful in the cloud. We've not talked about packing and encrypting services on the show yet. Can you give us the high level on this and why this has been so successful in the cloud? Yeah, absolutely. So this goes into, I think we've talked a little bit about kind of defense evasion or maybe even like polymorphism and things like that on the show before. And this is techniques that adversaries will use to try and hide code or remove the staticness, for lack of a better term, or, you know, remove the predictability of code. And they'll use packers and crypting services and obfuscators and things like that in order to break up what would be otherwise a signature or a static piece of code to perform a piece of function. Uh, and, you know, if you think about something like a Yara signature, or maybe in some cases, depending on the on the thing that you're looking for, uh, any sort of other detection like a Sigma signature or a Sigma rule, if you will, you're thinking about static values that you can match against. A Yara rule being the best example. If I see these particular bytes in a sequence, I know it means a thing. It does this, it does that. If I can see that a executable loads certain libraries, relies on certain DLLs, whatever it might be, I can get some idea about what it's doing, the predictability of it. So what happens in this case is you get tools or, or adversaries 
build tools, part of their infrastructure that help them kind of defeat that by crypting or breaking up or piecing apart or packing, aka compressing or hiding, depending on the different types of algorithms that they want to use. And what they're really doing here is making these executables harder to analyze either at scale in mass or via automated means. Um, if you've got a you know malware reverse engineer who's able to sit down with a piece of malware and they've got time to break it apart, they're, they're obviously going to find their way through it. I don't have time to do that at scale, and I definitely don't have time to do that if there's a cloud service that can recreate that binary at a moment's notice. So I think what we're seeing in this case is adversaries have found a thing. They found a way to evade defenses, and that's via this particular loader. It has the ability to morph the code, pack it, crypt it, whatever it might be, including uh, you know the PE header, which was mentioned as well. This it creates it a really, really tough thing for defenders to have to reverse. Because again, a lot of the automated collection tools that are out there rely on file headers, file extensions, or things that we can predict, things that we would expect to see. I know if an executable comes down the wire on a Windows system, for example, the .exe is not what I'm going to hinge on. It's going to be the MZ header at the very beginning, that 45A hex header at the beginning of the file, which is an MZ header that says this is a binary. Linux is going to have like an ELF, for example. Well, if I obfuscate and remove that, guess what? I might not have this thing classified as a binary, which may evade a lot of automated defenses or collection tools. So for that reason, you know, if adversaries find a successful technique like this, they'll tend to use it as much as they can because it hides their malware and it gets it on the system of interest and boom, they're off to the races like they always are. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of or makes me think about the business side of things where if the goo loader is a service that other malware authors are using to get their stuff into the place where they can detonate it, you know, somebody found a, a value in that market and created a business and a service and is now buying camouflage Lamborghinis or whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I do remember, too, reading through this one. Gulator also, also includes things like VBS scripts. I think there was use of um, Google Drive in the whole process. So that's the other side of it, too, is also hiding and, and masking and then staging subsequent stages of an infection. Staging, meaning placing these things in an accessible location and things like that, if you will, that's also something that's got to be automated. Because if I keep all my malware in one location and I never rotate it, then all we have to do is take that one location down. Whereas if I can have some sort of automated service move things around, guess what? I'm going to have much greater chances at getting my malware, first off, downloaded, but also it's going to take longer for that takedown to happen from a cloud provider perspective. Trend Micro is reporting on a Black Hat ransomware incident that occurred in February 2023, where a new capability was observed mainly used for the defense evasion phase. This new capability involves a signed kernel driver that was used with a separate user client executable in an attempt to control, pause, and kill various processes on the targeted endpoints. Defense evasion seems to be a theme in a lot of the new developments we're seeing. Is this a sign that security teams and products out there are getting better? And how is it that they are able to sign a kernel driver? Yeah, so this is this is an interesting one. Uh, this is something I do like the idea, your initial question of, is this evidence that we are getting better at security, therefore they're having to find new techniques? I, I would say it's probably a combination of both. Uh, in all of the, a lot of the, the digital forensic and incident response classes that I've taught before, we talk about driver signing as a potential evasion technique. In other cases, it can be a legitimacy 
technique. Those may not be one in the same. I may have a EDR tool that looks for non-signed binaries as a detection, but I also may have parts of the Windows operating system that require signed binaries in order to run for certain things. One of those is a legitimacy check. The other one is a potential malicious scan, if you will. And again, there's multiple ways to, to split those hairs, but it depends on what the adversary is going for. In this case, I think it was a combination of wanting to look and appear legitimate, as well as needing to have kernel level access in order to do what they wanted to do. So I do remember in reading through this one, it does talk about how in late December of 2022, there was kind of a coordinated disclosure effort between Mandiant, Sophos, and Sentinel-1. And in this, they talked about how there were malicious kernel drivers that had been signed, legitimately signed, through Microsoft hardware developer accounts. And this is, you know, an account that someone could apply for and get. And if they're able to publish drivers or publish code, they're able to get drivers signed. And that's, of course, like the first big step is getting signed so that the Windows operating system recognizes you and allows you to run. There is some relation to this Black Cat ransomware related to that. Trend Micro states that it overlaps with some of the earlier malicious drivers. This was a incident that they saw in February 2023. So we had about a two-month lapse in between this taking place. But the the big reason for this, uh, the big reason for the signed kernel driver is, of course, you know, what exactly they want to do with it. And the goal here is to, as you mentioned, control, pause, and kill various processes likely related to security agents that have been deployed on the system. This gets a little bit into the tamper-proofing that some agents put in place. If you start to meddle with it from a typical account perspective, maybe even from an admin account perspective, there are things in place that detect whether or not that's happening. But if I can get low enough into the subsystem of the operating system with enough privileges, maybe a signed driver, I can then start to impact these endpoints without tripping those tamper-proof mechanisms, if you will. So I think in this case... The, the big takeaway is that they were able to get their hands on some certificates. They were able to get their hands on some signed drivers and then subsequently use those for defense evasion, which I, I think is, you know, kind of a tactic that we're going to continue to see for a long time. I will say the other thing that's driving this is the increased security built into some of our operating systems. And I don't mean from a EDR or an AV endpoint perspective. I mean, some of the inherent, like, you know, drivers must be signed. They must have certain attributes associated with them. They only have certain certificates that are allowed. There's a lot of things that can be done to help mitigate malicious drivers, which is why getting something signed by Microsoft themselves is such an appealing target. It helps you get around some of those operating system protections that are in place to then subsequently disable some security. I wonder how hard it is to get a hardware developer certification from Microsoft. It seems like those accounts would be tied back to actual people who would then suffer some consequences for writing malware, or is it? Yeah, you you could see that. You could also see like companies can get them as well. So if I'm a company that needs to, you know, think about companies that are producing driver, let's take a printer, right? Let's take a printer company who, who needs to create and publish drivers because they want their printers to work with Windows operating systems and things like that. I'm not saying printers necessarily need kernel mode access and stuff, but there's an easy example of a of a legitimate company that might need some developer accounts in order to publish things and then get them, you know, published and subsequently they've got the privileges, but you know, who does that extend to inside of that company, right? As one example, is that a company-wide certification? Is it person by person? 
Is there a flow process that anyone can jump into? So basically, if I'm a developer at a company and someone says, hey, here's the workflow to get a driver signed by Microsoft, and I complete and go through that workflow and then share it with a friend of mine who wasn't hired for that purpose, you know, it's kind of it's sometimes it's tough to put a a face to a name. The other way to go about getting legitimate certs or defeat code signing requirements, if you will, is to get a code signing certificate that was either uh, leaked, stolen from a compromised environment, or purchased from an underground market. So ransomware authors do have a few ways of getting throughout these. That compromised account is one way of going about it. I will say it's a little riskier, kind of as you called out. It does tie back to someone or something, an entity somewhere. And Microsoft can always, as they did in this case, just shut that account down. So boom, I've lost that mechanism. But Hopefully I've produced enough ransomware that it will last me for a little while. Make hay while the sun is shining. <laughs> that's, that's what they say. Uh, I think this is the last one we're going to have time for. Uh, it's an interesting one. Kaspersky is introducing the world to a new APT group they are calling Golden Jackal. The group, which has been active since 2019, has been targeting government and diplomatic entities in the Middle East and South Asia. Despite being active for years, they've largely remained undetected. Kaspersky reports that they started monitoring this group in mid-2020 and have observed a constant level of activity. The main feature of this group is a specific tool set that is intended to control victim machines, spread across systems using removable drives, exfiltrating certain files from the infected system, stealing credentials, collecting information about the local system, about users' web activities, and taking screen captures of the desktop. Based on their tool set and the attacker's behavior, it seems the actor's primary motivation is espionage. It's always interesting to hear about new APT groups and look at the different actions they take that make them unique. This Golden Jackal group has a pretty robust custom tool set built using .NET. Uh, the different applications are called Jackal Control, Jackal Worm, Jackal Steel, Jackal Perf Info, and Jackal Screen Watcher. Is there anything novel or exceptional you saw when reading about their tool set? And is it reasonable to think that each of these would have been built by different teams of developers within their larger organizational structure? Yeah, so I always love when we get an APT report come out. It's, it's, uh, I don't say that with any admiration that we've had to suffer from yet another threat actor, but more along the lines of we get to read more and see more ways that people are doing what they're doing. And I think that this one right here, the Golden Jackal APT group is uh, definitely a unique one. First off, uh, on point branding for all of their different tools here, Jackal Control, Jackal Steel, Jackal Worm, Jackal Perinfo, <laughs> Jackal Screen Watcher. If you have no questions, if you're an intern over at Golden Jackal, exactly what these tools do. Can, I will can we say, make NFTs you know, for these things or something? Yeah, I, I, there's, I guarantee there's probably T-shirts made and, <laughs> you know, GitHub badges and all kinds of stuff. Who knows? But nonetheless, you know, I, I think uh, I think this lines up with what we see from a lot of APT perspectives. Uh, you've got, you know, a wide range of tooling, a, a wide range of capabilities and things like that. I remember reading through this one and we see things. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different usages here. There's malicious HTML or I believe HTA documents being dropped on there. Various code snippets. And uh, let me see if I can. Yeah. Malicious HTML pages that exploited the Folina vulnerability. There's a lot of .NET usage. There's various, uh, let's see, batch scripts that were in here. There's all sorts of stuff that they've created, which uh, is pretty representative of an APT group. They're going to have a lot of different capabilities behind them. And as you mentioned, there might be specific developers for each one. Uh, One of the interesting takeaways here that I think is that they've kind of broken these things out into individual pieces. 
So the idea of, you know, maybe what I think the screen watcher was one that kind of not threw me for a loop, but I always find very interesting when they break things out like that. It is a tool that's used to collect screenshots on the victim's desktop. And interestingly enough, you know, if you look at a tool like like Metasploit Meterpreter or, you know, some of the other open source tools, kind of that screen capture feature is just a thing that you do, you know, like it's just built in, if you will. To separate and break this out, I think, is just an interesting technique for the adversaries to have done. Uh, they utilize compromised WordPress websites as a way to host C2 logic. I think we've talked about WordPress and kind of compromising legitimate sites before. There is a little bit of interesting HTTP status code manipulation going on. Uh, if you go, the web page, if sent commands from the malware, responds with a not found, even though the response status code is 200, which for anyone who knows HTTP status codes, if a not found was present, that would be a 404. So this is yet another evasion technique that I think adversaries are using. Because again, if I'm an analyst and I'm just scrolling and clicking my way through web traffic to try and find an outlier, and I see not found, I'm going to assume a 404. The flip side of that is if I see a 200 and it's a very little bit of data being sent, I might not assess that it's actually any anything malicious there. So there's you know an interesting take. The geography of these victims definitely begins to align with you know an APT group, very regionally focused, malware geared towards the regions that they're targeting. This goes all the way back to, I believe most of the tools are built for Windows systems. This, of course, goes back to what they expect to encounter. And this, this goes into the reconnaissance and intelligence gathering stage. For an APT that is expecting to target certain entities, they're going to write malware that helps them achieve what they need to do in the target environments that they expect that they're going to be in. A lot of Windows dependencies in here, which, you know, is pretty typical. Windows is everywhere, of course. But knowing the parts of the world they were going after and the specific countries, there definitely seem to be some really interesting technical details here. The last thing I'll say is the blog post from Kaspersky. And again, huge props to the folks that disclosed this for us. They did, and I'll quote here, the group is probably trying to reduce its visibility by limiting the number of victims. Dot, dot, dot. The number of victims is very low. Most of them were related to government or diplomatic entities, Chris, as you mentioned. For that reason, I wouldn't be surprised if there's probably, you know, some other nexus state nexus or sponsored groups associated with this that may have other types of targets and we're just seeing the toolkit evident in place here but it's a definitely interesting one and one that i think we might see some more development on in future days or months as time goes on Um, but again it's just we'll see just how prevalent this group is as we learn more and more about them and similar to what we talked about earlier as other you know other threat intelligence or incident response companies come forward and say, oh, yeah, we've seen this, too. Here's our other indicators that add to it. We might see their client list grow or we might see something else change, depending on, again, what, what they've been up to. Super interesting. You did mention the uh, screen watcher, the Jackal screen watcher, and it got me thinking, you know, from a detection perspective, I imagine the exfiltration of screen captures would be a noticeable amount of data on the network. Is that something that uh, people can watch for or is it just too obfuscated with all the other traffic going in and out so in in some cases you can in some cases you can't um and i tend to start at a really high level and then zoom my way down so and and i don't i don't mean anything by this it's just let's start at the top right 
you're looking for pictures being sent over the internet. <laughs> yeah, right. At a at a high enough level, it seems very innocent, right? Very hard to do. So then then you're like, okay, well, let me drill into where they're going. And if I'm an adversary, I'm gonna think, well, how can I mask that simple task, right? Because you could go the other route and say, all right, well, if I'm interested in that, we're going to render every picture that crosses the internet. And if any of them match screenshots going to an external thing, we're going to be confused, right? Well, what if I download a web browser toolbar that allows me to take and save screenshots? So now I'm blending in with that traffic, right? What if I encrypt my screenshots before I send them out? What if I send them over HTTPS and, which I did in this case, I encrypt the payload and they send, sent them over HTTPS. So I've got encrypted data going over an encrypted channel in this case. So now if I'm a defender, I've got to be able to decrypt the traffic in motion, which might not be feasible for everyone. And then I've got to be able to decrypt the pictures that are going through. So then sometimes we get into maybe some heuristical analysis, which is, you know, I might think, wait, why do I have, you know, because one thing about screenshots is it's not a continuous video stream. One thing that that screenshots will have is they'll have an interval associated with them. And in this case, there was an interval. The default for Jackal Screen Rocher was 10 seconds, which tells me at probably a frequency of every 10 seconds, you're going to see picture out, picture out, picture out, or connection, 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 connection. Those are the type of heuristics that you'd want to look at is you'd want to look at, wait, why is this workstation sending very timed pings, very timed intervals out to this static domain? And they did call it out. The Jackal Screen Watcher did send to a hard-coded C2. So there was no dynamic C2, no rotation of addresses or usernames or host names or anything like that. It was just pictures being taken, encrypted, beaconed out, and then wash, rinse, and repeat. Those are the types of heuristics you'd want to look for is that repetitive activity. That may be a good indicator of there's something not right here. Yeah, that's uh, some kind of beacon to watch for, right? The the machine level pulsing that, that you're seeing on the network. And I will mention too, um, the Kaspersky blog post did a really good job. There's tons of IOCs at the bottom, indicators of compromise. So if this is something that's concerning anyone who listens to this, especially if you're in the target region. Definitely recommend checking out some of the things they provided and then utilizing those to to your advantage to see if you've been compromised or not. Yeah, and as always, I'll link all the articles that we covered here today in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome, Matt. Uh, another one in the books. Thanks again for coming out. Really enjoy these. Looking forward to next week. Likewise, as always, Chris, thanks. And a huge thanks again to our Intel community over in our, our Intel chat over in our community Slack. Can't wait to see what comes up in the next week. Cheers. And that concludes episode number 36 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.